0: Last thing, as a committed Christian throughout your whole life, it's really, really hard. It's uh, not the sort of thing you can do on your own. You can't be a solo Christian, much to everyone's uh, surprise. Some people say, oh, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Really, that's not true. Um, there are intellectual challenges. Um, there are cultural challenges. There are moral challenges that face us all through our life. Idols of sex, money and power um, fight for our heart. So, you know, you need help. Sometimes it seems easier just to go with our desires than it is to stay a Christian. So we need to encourage each other to stay in our faith. And I want to start by giving you some 10 things that I've thought of, 10 ways that you can encourage each other in your faith. 10 practical things. The first one is really obvious. Probably some of you might have talked about this just then. And that is to use words, to use specific words. Words encourage people in their faith. Um, so, for example, if um, you have morning tea at the end of the service and you really enjoy the cake, right, you, you, you be specific, you go up to Anna Ham and say, Anna, who, who makes a lot of our cakes, thank you so much for making the cake. It's so great to have great food at our church that's um, gluten-free and nut-free and um, healthy. But you, you really build up our church. Thank you so much, right? That's specific encouragement. Words can also encourage through text messages. Just this week, I got a text message from uh, Brian Coogan. Brian, hi Brian. And he, and on Wednesday on my day off, he, he texted me, Hey Pete, random message to say thanks for all you do and for the so much that you bring. I love that, This so much. <laughs> There's so much that you bring. Hope you've had a sensational day off. He just, just wrote it because he felt like it. Last year in July when I was setting up, um, you know, the gear at the start of the service um, with the the band standing around, I got a text message from um, a colleague, um, Megan Curlis gibson some of you might know her, and she lives out in Warrandyte now, and she just texted me randomly like I hadn't spoken to her for about six months. "'Hey Pete, bless you as a minister today in whatever way, whether it's a family, congregation or your own soul, you're on my heart and I pray for your success in the Lord Jesus.' X, X, Megan. There you go. So which I replied, thanks so much, Megan. A really needed message this morning. I feel encouraged and I'm sharing it as I text this with Laura Parks, who is now reflecting on the fact that you were the first to recruit her in a worship band when she was 15. Now she's 31 and leading at Merry Creek. To which Megan replied, Awesome! You are both seriously amazing and gifted and full of the Lord's courage to keep serving and growing. To which I replied, Thanks so much! Have a great Sunday. Cold outside but warm in the heart. You know, I mean, that encourages you in your faith when stuff like that happens. So, use words. Second thing you can do to encourage people in their faith is to be encouraged by other people's joy. So, you need to keep your eyes open. Um, And this can be achieved even if what they're doing isn't your cup of tea. So um, Peter Adams, some of you might know him, used to be the minister at St. Jude and principal of Ridley College, tells his story about how one time he was sitting in church, and you know, Peter's a bit of a music snob, you might not realise this, but he is. And he was sitting in church, and he was singing one of those woeful worship songs that they sing in churches. And he was just like, oh, not this one again. And, um, and then he said, but he looked over and a few rows in front of him was this other person who was singing with their heart, you know, yeah, getting into it and doing all this stuff. And anyway, he, he said, he thought to himself, praise God that this person's encouraged by this song. Um, and so he, he was encouraged by somebody else's joy. So you don't even need to like what someone else is doing. Like it might not be your cup of tea, yet you can be encouraged if you have the right attitude. A third thing you can do to build up encouragement in the church is to offer practical help. Perhaps you could help someone move house or maybe you're good with tools and, and your friend isn't at church and you can, or it doesn't have to be a friend, it just the person is and then you can help them out. Um, so many people have commented on how much they have appreciated the take them a meal thing that Eliza, Claire um, had, ha- has been organising over the last two years. And now she's gone. We farewelled them last week, if you weren't here. Declares to go to Ballarat. Um, It would be great if somebody could pick that up. You know, that's a great way to encourage people just to bring a meal over. It actually encourages them in their faith. And if they're not a Christian, it just encourages them as a person. Fourthly, realise your presence in the room. Your presence in the room actually encourages other people. So when you don't come to worship on a Sunday, or to community group, or play group, or to when the Christian community is gathering, your, your presence not being there discourages someone. Now, I know we've all of, often got good reasons why we can't come to some, for some you know, but, but, but know that by not coming along, it actually will have an impact on others, okay? Sometimes when we go home from church, um, Leo, my five-year-old, will say, Dad, um, Mia and Tom weren't there today. And he'll notice, you know, somebody who wasn't there. And he's not actually, like, he just asks him, oh, why, why weren't they there? Because from a, his point of view, this is his family. This is his spiritual family. So it encourages him to see the grown-ups around. You'd be surprised. Um, or you should not be, you should not underestimate the impact you have, even on the little ones who you might not even know their name. Um, it's like having a, I think for me, the gathering of the believers is like your family meal—you know, if the brother or the sister or the mum or the dad, whatever—is not there, really, you notice. Fifthly, it's good if, to notice if others are absent, and that encourages them. So, for example, don't just hope that somebody else is going to contact them if they're absent from the community life. Make you make the contact. That's a good way to encourage them in their faith. Six, speak the word of God to each other. So remember that God's word is encouraging. It builds up. When we talk to each other, have Christ-centered conversations. And we're actually going to do a a short sermon series later in the year on that on what it is to have Christ-centered conversations. Seven, don't stand for church gossip. If everyone chooses to stay out of church gossip, then the congregation will be more mutually encouraging. We'll be a healthier church. And actually, I think Mary Creek, at the moment, is um, good, good in that respect. It's good to encourage you, like, I don't hear gossip and I don't... It's not a thing at the moment. Yes, that's good. Eight, mentor someone. If you want to really blow someone away with encouragement, offer to mentor them. Meet up with them. This requires your time and commitment, but it's a great way to encourage someone. Nine, you can pray for one another. Of course, that is a great way to encourage your own faith and other people's faith. And 10, give your money to someone who needs it in the congregation. Wow, if you want to encourage someone, that's going to do it. Um, I was so encouraged by it in the camp. Um, about $1,000 of extra money was given on top by congregation members just to help make ends meet and to support people who couldn't afford to go. Okay, so there's 10 ways you can encourage each other in your faith. Very down-to-earth and practical. And we're talking about this because as we look at Hebrews 3, Um, 7 to 19, we hear about the importance of encouraging each other. And the first six verses of Hebrews 3, which we didn't have read out, but you could read in your own time, talks about how Jesus is way better than Moses. And so this rest of this passage is kind of saying because Jesus is way better than Moses, rejecting Jesus is far more serious than rejecting Moses. Don't, Don't reject Jesus. Rather, Help each other out by encouraging each other to stick with Jesus, to trust in him, by building each other's faith up. So that's basically what this passage is about. And my talk is going to be divided into two sections. The first is talking about how the story of Israel and the Exodus is actually there for us, for our application, our instruction into our lives. And the second part of the talk is about, it's a discipleship lesson, to avoid sin and a hard heart towards God by encouraging each other. So let's start with the, um, the story of Israel and the Exodus. Now, you maybe if you know the story of the Jewish people, the Israelites, you'll know that the story of the Exodus is perhaps their most important story that they tell each other over and over again, that they get from the Bible. It's a, it's, it's a powerful story of God's saving grace towards them. But for the early Christians, the story of Jesus is a story of a new Exodus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, Paul calls Jesus the um, Passover lamb. This is a direct reference to a key point in the Exodus story. The story of Jesus is also the new Exodus because, like the Israelites who were freed from slavery in Egypt, so Jesus frees um, Christians from slavery to sin. And together we travel through the wilderness together. Just as the Israelites were saved through uh, the waters of the Red Sea, so um, Jesus saves Christians through the waters of baptism. Just as the Israelites ate the manna in the wilderness um, and drank from the water from the rock, so the church feeds on Christ the bread of life and is guided um, by Jesus, the living rock. We receive the word and sacraments of the Lord in the Lord's Supper and Baptism we received Jesus just as the Israelites received their food in the desert just as the Israelites headed towards the promised land the promised land of milk and honey in Canaan so Jesus leads us towards the promised land of being with him for all, in all of eternity so the story of Jesus is the new and better Exodus story that's the point of the Jesus Exodus but this doesn't mean we shouldn't Um, not read the story of Moses it's not like well we've got a better version so we'll just disregard the first version Christians believe that all scripture is God breathed and useful for teaching rebuking, correcting and training in all righteousness so what do we learn from the Exodus story one thing we learn is that while the story of the Exodus is a story of God's faithfulness, of God's miracles God's power, so visual so grand Yet the Israelites had short memories. They actually distrusted God. They were disobedient. So the Exodus is a story actually of Israel's rebellion. It's a story of God's faithfulness and a story of Israel's rebellion. Now, there were many times when they were disobedient to God and they rebelled against Him, lots of times. But the Hebrews 3 is referring to one particular time. And it actually quotes Psalm 95 which is uh, in in the passage. And Psalm 95 is actually referring to a story that happened back in Numbers chapter 14. Now, don't get lost in all the references, just let me reiterate that again. Hebrews, it's it's spanning three different time periods. Hebrews, written in about, I don't know, 60 or 70 AD, 63 AD, I think, is quoting Psalm 95, which is written about 5th century BC, which is quoting Numbers 14, Uh, which happened in 1500 BC. In fact, they're all pointing to the Numbers 14 passage, so just focus on that. What was that event? It's the testing. It's the rebellion. Before the Israelites finally entered into the promised land of Canaan, they sent spies in to check it out. The spies came back and they were worried. God had taken them there and said, this is where you should be going. This is the land of milk and honey. This This is the promised land. But they didn't really trust what God said. The spies came back and said... We're a bit worried. The people there are much bigger than us and we think we're going to get beaten up. So let's just not go in there. And the people actually revolted revolted against um, Moses and Aaron. They were on the point of choosing new leaders and they wanted to go back to Egypt. They were sentimental. They remembered the good old days of being slaves in Egypt. It's funny how you remember the past. And this made God absolutely furious and he wanted to send a plague to them. (laughs) But Moses interceded on their behalf and so he did not wipe out that generation of Israelites. But God did say that all those people who saw all the miracles that he performed in front of them and had seen his power saving them from oppression in Egypt, none of them would be able to see the land. It says not one of them will ever see the land I promised on oath to their ancestors. No one who has treated me with contempt will ever see it. So instead of invading the promised land at once and taking possession of it, they <laughs> remained for another 38 years in the neighbourhood of Kadesh Barnea because of their rebellion. A whole new generation had to come and emerge. Now you might think to yourself, God sounds like a bit of a whinger here. He's a bit, you know, flying off the handle. God of the Old Testament seems like a big sook. You know... Why does he have to punish the Israelites like this? The answer is because God actually had done so much for them. He'd freed them. He'd given them his law. He'd saved them from their enemies. God had stayed with them, provided and protected them. Yet they kept rebelling against him over and over again. They rebelled when they were in trouble. They also rebelled uh, when God had met all their needs. And so, when they finally get to the promised land, and they, trust, they don't trust him and they rebel another time, as it is recorded in our passage, Hebrews 3 verse 10, God said, That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, Their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, They shall never enter my rest. God was angry with that whole generation of Israelites, faced with sin, the perfect and righteous God didn't say, it doesn't matter. It did matter. Their hearts had gone astray. By hearts, God meant everything about them. Their whole inner state, their thoughts, as well as their emotions, their innermost being. And it could not be said that their sinning was just on the surface and that their heart was in the right place. No, it was their character, their virtue was wrong. They will like this always, it says in verse 10. The other accusation that um, God puts towards Israelites, apart from hearts going astray, is ignorance. They were ignorant. They have not known my ways. And this isn't the kind of ignorance where, you know, they just didn't know. It's that ignorance where you do know and you just are lazy. Like um, I remember once, the first time I was pulled over by a cop for speeding when I was a a P-plater. And my first car was a Kingswood station wagon. And the, um, the speedo was in miles per hour. And so it was about 2 o'clock in the morning and I was driving down Burke Road. And <laughs> my heart starts racing and I go, like, oh no, what's happening? And um, the police dr- man pulled me over. He was an old man. He was actually quite nice. And he said, uh, excuse me, sir, why were you dr- doing 80 in a 60 zone? And I said, oh, sorry, officer, uh, it's in miles per hour. And I'm not quite good at translating it to kilometres per hour. And Pathetic. That's what you call ignorance when actually you should know better. And so I got my phone. The Israelites had no excuse for ignorance. That God had given them the law. He had given them um, the prophets. He had revealed himself to them in physical, dynamic ways. Yet yeah, despite all this, they... They, they remained um, in ignorance. They, what do you call that? Learned helplessness, where you just don't even try. So God's patience had run out, and this is a theological principle that some, many of us in the modern age of the church of cheap grace, we don't realise that um, God's patience has a time limit. We think God is a God of grace. He'll just, he'll just, you know, he's just a free-floating God that just. Ah, it doesn't matter. Actually, no, his patience has a time limit. Think of Noah. Uh, God's patience ran out. I'm going to send a flood. With What about the Israelites' rebellion against God? Eventually, God gave up on the, them and they ended up in Babylon in exile. In 2 Chronicles 36, we read this. They continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against his people until there was no remedy. God God is patient but there's a limit on that patience Paul the apostle wrote in 1 Timothy 1:16 1, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst but for that very reason I was shown mercy so that in me the worst of sinners Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life yes God is patient but there's a limit on that patience in John 8.23, Jesus says to the disciples, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he. You will indeed die in your sins. There comes time when there's no more time. God's patience has limits. If you turn your back on God, if you revel in your sin, I'm talking specifically here to Christians here. If you turn your back on God, if you revel in your sin, if you throw God's grace back in his face, you are foolish. Don't do it. The danger that you face is that he will hand you over to your heart, heart hardened heart. And you'll find yourself no longer with God. God's patience might run out. And you don't have any control over that. Now, I'm not saying that if you, like the prodigal son, come to your senses and turn back, that he won't accept you. Of course he'll accept you. God is a God of infinite love, infinite grace, but sometimes he hands us over to the thing that we want. Just don't stuff God around. If he leaves you to your own sin, you might never realise you need to turn back. That's the problem And that is why God made an oath not to let that generation of Israelites enter the promised land. Now this is all being remembered a thousand years later in the psalm. This later generation of Israelites were being warned in the psalm not to be like their ancestors. Don't be like them. Because if they do, disaster will overtake them too. too. And now many generations later in the um, time of the Hebrews, it's being remembered again. And there's a key word there, today. It's a key word Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. The Holy Spirit spoke in Psalm 95 and brought up that story from a thousand years earlier. And the Holy Spirit spoke in the time of Hebrews and the Holy Spirit speaks to us today the same thing. The point is we are like the Israelites wandering through the desert. We are like the Israelites in that God has done so much for us and is apparently doing so much for us and promises to do so much for us in the future. So this story of the, for the, of the Israelites in, in their exodus is a story for us. It's for our instruction so we don't rebel like they did. And, and so that we don't get the judgment that they got. So that's the first point. The story of Israelites in the exodus and Moses is actually for our instruction and warning. So the second point is that a discipleship lesson that we get from this passage in Hebrews 3, which is to learn from their mistakes and to avoid sin and a hard heart towards God by encouraging each other. Verse 12: See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Just as the Israelites were tempted to sin to turn back in the wilderness to Egypt and return to the place where they were oppressed and in slavery, so too the Jewish Christians who are tempted to go back to their Jewish faith and to not stay with Jesus. And for us, the danger is that we're tempted to go back to our old life, a life without Jesus. So what do we do? Verse 13. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. Because sin deceives us. You need others to encourage you. If your heart is hardened against God, you won't go looking for encouragement, as i said before. So if you're a person who is perhaps apathetic about your faith right now, if you're feeling spiritually depressed, and that's a hard place to be, and it's common in the Christian life to go through waves like this, don't rely on your own strength to stay strong in your faith. You need other people. If your heart has a callous forming over it towards God, it, it, it's like it makes us a bit less receptive. And God's speaking to us, speaking to us, and we're just like, I'm just not listening. I saw an article, it's interesting how we need each other. I saw an article the other day, um, uh, it's a, a music teacher's vlog, and it was talking about a lot of research that's gone in to show that kids don't give up their musical instruments, parents give up their kids' musical instruments. You know, the kid says, I don't want to play on the violin, I don't want to practice, I don't want to practice. And the parents eventually say, oh, I don't want to push you. And this is annoying. And I don't want to have to listen to you practice. Okay, we'll just give up. So the parents stop paying for lessons and the kid eventually stops practicing the violin. But actually it's the parents who've stopped the kid from playing the violin. Now, maybe it's a good thing, you know, but... Let's realise where the responsibility lies. Actually, the same thing goes with Christian faith. To a point, with kids, your kids will get bored with church. Your kids will get will complain at times. Oh, I don't want to have to go to church, especially when they become teenagers and teenagers, and um, when they've got competing things in their life. When they become nerds and they want to study on a Sunday morning for their VC exam, or instead of come you know be with their Christian brothers and sisters. If they're sporty, they'd rather play footy on a Sunday morning. If they're social butterflies, they'd rather be at a party on a Sunday morning. I ask the parents, are you going to encourage your kids at those times in their faith? Or are you going to encourage them to be autonomous, to make their own decisions? Your influence is actually quite significant here. You might be nervous about pushing them too hard. and You don't want them to just hate it because you've been pushing them. On the other hand, you might actually be pushing them to become free agents, to actually just do whatever they want to do, to take the path of least resistance. I'm an experienced youth worker. I've done it for a while, but um, I like to dabble every now and again with youth ministry. But the parents who end up with kids that stay in their faith during the teenage years, uh, in many cases, not always, but in many cases are the, are the kids whose parents, Christian parents, encourage them through those times, even like when they didn't want to go to the youth program in the church, youth group on a Friday night, oh, I don't want to go again. The parents just, you're going to ch- going to youth group. Um <laughs> Dave Fuller, who's the Anglican minister now, Greensboro Anglican, he's a bikey as well, God's court. Um, Not the, Harley, the Hells Angels. Um, he actually also used to teach the youth ministry program at Ridley and he, he said he forced his um, boys to go to youth groups sometimes. He says, you just gotta go, go. You know, and it's because the idea is not that you're, hard, you're a hard parent, but that you know what's good for them. Sometimes you just don't know what's good for you. And the same thing goes with adults. We're like kids sometimes. We need to push each other to keep strong in our faith. Encouragement isn't just about giving flowers. It's not just about going out for coffee. Sometimes it's speaking the truth in love. Sometimes it's rebuking. Sometimes it's saying, no, the life you're living is sinful. You know, stop it. Actually, rebuke is is a painful form of encouragement. Verse 14 says, We have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. It's a long road, the Christian road. We have to hold on to our original conviction that Jesus is Lord all the way until we die. The writer of the Hebrews ends the chapter by warning the church that they are not immune to falling away from their faith. The Christian fool is the one who thinks, I'll be all right. I've lasted this long. What's going to stop me now? To you, the writer of Hebrews says, as it has just been said, verse 15, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Your ancestors, the Israelites, rebelled against God. Don't you do it too? Whether it's the Israelites in the age of the Old Testament or the people in 2016, we all have a choice to make. This is where I want to end. We hear God's voice, we listen to his promise, we see what he does in the world, we receive his warnings against disobedience and we respond basically in two ways. We can respond in unbelief, in disobedience, in ignorance and a sinful hardened heart or we can respond in faith, mutual encouragement, sharing in Christ a firm hold on our confidence. Let me encourage you today to respond in faith. Let's pray. Lord God, uh, we lift up our congregation to you. And we pray for all of us to not um, take for granted um, our faith, that we can be listening to you every day, that we can be encouraging each other. We pray for those of us who are in danger, of, of falling away of, of turning our backs on God of, re- of romanticising the past and going back to Egypt we pray that uh, we can, we, our ears can be opened our, uh, the callous on our heart can be taken away that you can soften us and bring us back to you Amen